Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And this week we'll be looking at Rungano Nioni's I Am Not a Witch. We'll be opening the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first we're going to take a look at Sally Potter's The Party. Listen, I'm going to propose a toast to my oldest, dearest and most loyal friend who has achieved a rare thing, which is why we're all here this evening in case anyone forgot. Babies, excuse me, Jenny, Martha, but babies get born every day in extremely large numbers to the point of endangering the planet and all our futures. It's not every day, however, that one of us becomes a minister in your entirely rotten and useless opposition party. Fuck you, April. Though, of course, you're right. What? The Party is a short chamber piece, a drama and original story written and directed by Sally Potter, as though it's adapted from an Edward Albee play. It's confined to a single set, although fluid in movement and its attention to its characters. It takes place in Janet's home, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, a politician who is celebrating for just becoming Shadow Minister for Health. The title then as with many things and comments in the film, has a double meaning, referring to the party and gathering occurring right then in the film and also to the political party that Kristen is part of. As she says, she's working for all of us, for our party. Too many things happen to mention and there are complex character relations, some unexpected and some dramatically determined to mention here. But to summarise, this is a film whose awkwardness is its strength and its charm. It's a film that thrives off the beauty of clashing personalities, of people unable to consider opposing viewpoints. I love that a film that puts smart people who can't stand each other's company in one place and won't let them leave. The tension is divine. But there's also some power wielded by Potter in the 71-minute running time. Other key players are Patricia Clarkson, Timothy Spall and Bruno Ganz and tensions boil to an ending that is both unexpected and entirely believable within the scope of a black comedy. I think it can probably be summarised most concisely by a quote from April, played by Clarkson, who says, with a mixture of flippancy and sincerity, I expect the worst of everyone in the name of realism. Like All About Eve that we discussed last episode, this film is full of great one-liners. I found myself wanting to write so many down. But there's also a richness to it as an overall piece. Andy, what did you think? I thought this worked really, really well. I loved it. Um, you're right, there is a really long history of there being people stuck in a room trying to have food and then it becoming this <laughs> metaphor and all sort of stuff. But she really brought something new to it and it was so pithily put together and so well edited. And it didn't ever slip into theatricality, which a lot of these sorts of setups can. It's hard to pick out any, a favourite actor, but I think Patricia Clarkson just delivers lines like nobody I've seen. And she gets given some crackers like... Her April and Bruno Gantz Gottlieb have this mm. um, bizarre relationship where he's this really beautiful, gentle, new age thinker who just kind of wants to be nice to everybody and she just puts him down constantly. Like that amazing line, tickle an aromatherapist and you'll find a fascist. <laughs> and it, it, it's weird because I feel like they're often nodding to the role he's best known for, which is playing Hitler in Downfall. It, it, it's kind of doubly weird seeing him pull out these sorts of beautiful new agey quotes. But um, yeah, I thought it was a really, really effective film and I highly recommend it. And it's also just so refreshing to see something short and funny and well written. Totally. It's just so nice. It didn't feel like it needed to be any longer. Just did what it's out to do beautifully, I thought. Anders? Uh, I'm just going to comprehensively disagree with the both of you. Um, I really disliked the party. I Well, I yeah, no, I did dislike it, actually. I didn't 
enjoy the dialogue at all. I thought it what? was it felt so incredibly broad. I and I'm not sure maybe this was on purpose. This is a kind of film where the main character, who's played by Kristen Scott Thomas, she's this newly minted uh, minted uh, minister. She sort of has this argument, and then she'll say, "I don't believe in revenge. I believe in truth and reconciliation." because she's sort of like the socialist lefty character or the kind of film where Killian Murphy's banker character yells that money bought this house, not ideas, Tom. Like it just seemed to me like they were very obvious. This is like a, a very um, over-the-top broad caricatures of these, you know, the a, the apparently amoral banker, the, so, the old socialist lefty, the new age guy. Um, the sort of wry liberal. It just, I don't know, none of that. I, I thought the, yeah, I just didn't do much for me at all. I, d- I don't know why it was in black and white either. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like they all stand in for a certain part of society necess- or kind of, although not all quotients of society represented, of course. Um, and it's a very particular type in this house at this time. But I really liked the way that they like operated and that everyone seemed just really uncomfortable and everyone was contradicting themselves and that was kind of what was really great about it. I do – I love it as a concept and I feel like it's a film that will get better every single time I see it. The first time – it didn't quite work for me as an experience, Anders, so I feel like I know where you're coming from. But I think thinking about it afterwards has made me reconsider it. Mm. Um, and I do feel like – Watching it again will just make you know the the meaning in the dialogue will kind of yeah. shine more. Yeah, because I do love the way that she manages to be extremely specific about some things without ever mentioning dates or times or tying it down to one political party or one polit- moment in political history or anything like that. So it feels really applicable to progressive politics in Australia at the moment in a way, like exposing these petty aspirations and the way they tear apart friendships and relationships. And I, I quite like the way that she subverted stuff. I mean, you do think you're getting, you know, stock characters when you go in, but then you know, like, like Don's Party and some of these other things, you know, as night progresses and food doesn't doesn't get served and things kind of fall away. I thought it was I thought it was quite well done. I'm surprised you weren't... Uh, no, I just... I mean, I, I think it's a great conceit and I think it is interesting in terms of being... Uh, yes, very much of its of the moment. Very much of you know Brexit. I think it was literally filmed during Brexit oh, it was referendum. Written wasn't it? beforehand. It was written before. before I was um, reading about 14, it. Think, yeah. yeah, and they were filming, um, and they had to come into work the day that it was announced, and yes, everyone was yeah, crying right. and everything. So, well, yeah. and you can definitely that whole debate looms. I think over this film. I mean, it is sort of inner city. Liberal intelligentsia arguing amongst themselves, but I don't know. I just really, I just did not like the dialogue at all. I just found it very obvious. I thought the points were very obvious. I love the line where Kristen Scott Thomas is like having this emotional moment towards the end. I won't say why, but April says to her, I believe what you are experiencing is a feeling. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so great because they're both, I don't know, they both seem kind of like awful people. Yeah, but and they keep undercutting each other. Yeah, it's it's really interesting the dynamics they managed to get out of that. I really liked Sherry Jones Martha as well, I thought. She was also a big, big kind of written as a, almost a rote mm. character studying gender differentiation yeah. on American utopianism, which yeah. actually sounds kind of interesting. Well, and she's a great actor, actually, and I, I love her whenever I see her. Um, I really didn't like Timothy Spall. I found him gaunt and insufferable. Oh, I liked, I liked the way that he was shot. He always seemed to be, I don't know why, <laughs> but always had the strangest lenses mm. like on him when he was shot. Mm. He always looked, I mean, this is kind of the point of his character, but he always looked distorted in some ways. Um, and the tone shifts when he shifts 
you know, in a power dynamics within the film. Um, and the lens and the framing kind of continues to put him, position him as like this weird outsider and unwelcome in his own home. And I thought that was, mm, yeah. that was really good, you know, for a very simple play-like film that that was, you know, in the same way that other f- single set films will move around and have to be dynamic in some way that that was mm. really well done. Yeah. Yeah, I liked him. I uh, sorry, I just have to disagree. I just found, <laughs> I found not only the characters but the film insufferable. So because often you, you know you get these movies where you're around a lot of people for a long for the entire duration yeah. of the film and you don't really like these people, not very pleasant yeah. and that sort of stuff. But I'm just really surprised that you didn't just at least want to be a fly on the wall and watch these people tear each other uh, apart. Uh, no, because I these, I love that you brought up Albie as well. It's such a good point. I, I mm. they just felt like a very broad caricatures to me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, when characters are in a place and they don't have any external forces um, challenging them or, you know, confronting them, they can come off as caricatures in that way because mm. there's nothing else to respond to. And so they just have to be written in a very direct way. Perhaps that was... Yeah, um, yeah. They all said very obvious generalizations. I think this was my problem. Like when, yeah, when the banker says money bought this house, financier, the financier. Sorry, yes, he works in finance. Uh, Money bought this house, not ideas, Tom. Like to me, that just seems like very obvious argument. A very, I mean, what's but it was also a desperate maneuver by somebody who's got very different priorities and you know even talks. I love that line about how he can't help himself and he can't help anybody, which is kind of like the ultra capitalist. State, statement mm. that you're not really yeah. doing anything apart from yeah, making yeah, extremely yeah, selfish. Sure. Um, so I don't know. Mm. I saw that as a bit of a petty power play. I mean, I kind of think that maybe when you go to a dinner party, you kind of have these conversations anyway, where people can just make have to make the broadest comment of all time um, in order to get anything communicated in that dinner party space. I don't know. Mm. Seems to work for me. Some of the um, also some of the dramatic escalation I found. A bit awkward. There's this awkward segue where one of the characters says, I have to protect my babies. And another character says, you do just like I have to protect my marriage. And then he makes this revelation about his marriage. Mm. It just felt like it just felt like the scenes were just flaunted. They weren't even showing. They were just being flaunted. Do you feel like if it wasn't a... so it didn't have such a short running time and it had they had more time to explain themselves or expand that maybe this could have been a better film for you, Anders? Yeah, possibly. Or would you I'm just have sure, hated actually. it because you found them all so insufferable? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure. I quite liked the short duration, I've got to say. And I loved Kristen Scott Thomas's performance. So there are things to enjoy in it. But I... And it is interesting, I think, in terms of thinking about Brexit and cosmopolitanism and blah, blah, blah. But it just, no, it wouldn't work for me. And I don't think it did at all. Yeah, because I found it more enjoyable in exploring the tensions between Janet and Bill, like a successful woman and a man. Like that's always, that doesn't seem to be explored very often in film. But I think it's really interesting, like Dennis Thatcher and Margaret Thatcher or Prince Philip and the Queen or something like that. And these things usually tend to be on the right, which is kind of weird. I couldn't couldn't really think of many examples of the progressive politics where there's a successful woman and and a husband who like... He's being, I don't know, he has to occupy this strange sort of place mm. in society. Yeah, and, and the film sort of looks at that yeah, yeah, in I a that's very obvious, annoying, <laughs> irritating way because they the reference points are Margaret Thatcher and, you know, they have these sort of self-conscious conversations about how um, they're supporting each other and, you know, she, it wasn't Patricia Clarkson say... 
character say at one point, you know, I'm the I'm the gatekeeper of this party or ministerial oh, orders. Right, yeah, yeah. It was just <laughs> I don't know. I just found myself cringing in all of that. All right. Okay. The Maybe bo- it's my hatred of the political class uh, <laughs> coloring everything about this film because I really disliked the death of Stalin too because it felt like yes. a similarly pat exploration of contemporary of, of well that's wow. not contemporary politics but of politics. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, cool. <laughs> I just want to mention, um, if we're wrapping up the discussion, that I read this article in The Guardian. It was an interview with Sally Potter and then there must have always been some inclusion of a panel discussion with the cast as well, I think, because they're talking about Bruno Ganz and how Sally Potter had always wanted to work with him and, like, that this was an incredible experience because she finally got to work with this brilliant actor and that Bruno Ganz was really happy because, um, like you said, Andy, he's used to playing either really bad Germans, I think, um, (laughs) you know, and he's known for playing Hitler. So he's not used to playing comic roles, so this was really good for him. He made some comment about, like, making Madame Merkel happy. (laughs) Um, because he's a good German now. So he's giving them, you know, a really good place in in the cultural sphere. Um, But there there was just seems like he's a really awesome person and the cast are really great and like beautiful people because then it's this article says Patricia Clarkson quipped that she had done one better than Sally Potter by playing Gans's lover. (laughs) Timothy Spall, who plays Janet's husband, Bill, said he had been luckier still. I get a kiss of life full in the mouth mouth from him, he said, referring to Gans's character's attempts to resuscitate him. <laughs> so they're all like falling over themselves to, <laughs> to be impressed by Bruno Gans. I just really like that as a little yeah. extra facet. Yeah. Also, that dialogue was far more witty than anything in the film, <laughs> in my opinion. Fair enough. <laughs> Oh no! I still think things like this, the stroke of like having um, Janet making volivants is just, the volivant is the perfect yeah, thing for somebody cool. to be making that in that cool. sort of scenario. Yeah, especially when she's rabbiting on about Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and all that. <laughs> anyway, um, I thought there was a lot to like. Anyway, it's divided us, yes. but perhaps you should see it and give it a go. Figure it out for yourself. Yeah, seventy-one minutes. What have you got to lose? Yeah. So the party is out in Australia through Madman on April twelfth. Which brings us to this episode's Cultural Capital Film Diary. The Young at Heart Festival, which we took a look at last episode, is running until April 25, which means that you could still catch Dominic Cook's adaptation of Ian McEwan's On Chessel Beach, Rob Reiner's Woody Harrelson starring LBJ, and Cecilia Attan's The Desert Bride. Over at the Astor, you can compare two classics of martial arts with Robert Klaus's Enter the Dragon and Alex Proyas's The Crow. And finally, a double bill of two of the best blockbusters of the last 12 months, Black Panther and Thor Ragnarok, screened together on April 14. As part of Acme's Wonderland exhibition, Disney's 1951 adaptation Alice in Wonderland is screening until October 6. The Hayao Miyazaki season continues with Spirited Away, which runs until April 21st, My Neighbor Totoro, which runs until April 29th, Ponyo, which finishes April 22nd, and Arietti until the 28th. And finally, a film we thought was pretty decent on the whole, Francois Ozon's France, which is screening until April 17. Eloise, what's happening over at Cinematech? So for a couple of weeks, the Cinematech is programmed on a Monday night. So Monday, April 9th is the beginning of Francois Truffaut season. If you didn't get enough of Jeanne Moreau in our opening season of 2018, then she stars in The Bride Wore Black, mm. which is first up. Um, and then a great selection of some of his other films. So check it out. <laughs> And that was a clip from I'm Not a Witch. 
Zambian and Welsh writer-director Rungano Nyoni makes her feature film debut with I Am Not a Witch. The compelling Maggie Malabwa plays an eight-year-old orphan girl in rural Zambia. When a woman carrying a jug of water falls and spills it, she accuses the girl of witchcraft. Hauled before a government official, he takes her to a community of women who are identified as witches, all of whom carry enormous ribbons tied to their backs, ostensibly to prevent them from flying away. The women sleep, work and eat communally, their lives at the whims of the men around them, chief amongst them the aforementioned government official. Occasionally, a busload of tourists comes by, gawking at the women and taking photos. The women name the girl Shula, which means to be uprooted, and we follow her immersion into her newfound witch status. From undertaking backbreaking farm labour to making talk show appearances hawking eggs for sale, her life is completely uprooted. All of this is told in a rather beautiful way by Rangana Nyoni, with help from cinematographer David Gallego, who shot the similarly visually beguiling Embrace of the Serpent in 2016. What begins as a drama incorporating some incredibly dry comedy turns into something far darker and, I found at least, much more interesting, with an exceptionally smart screenplay, a striking visual sensibility and some fascinating sound design this is quite the assured debut, and I think Neoni's career will be one to keep tabs on. Eloise, were you as struck by I Am Not a Witch as I? Yes, I was. I am stunned by this film. I saw it at MIF last year. Um, it screened at MIF, and I think it premiered at Cannes last year as well. Um, but watch it again. And it's just, I mean, it's stunning. It opens with this big, um, like, Vivaldi piece that really, really, you know, kind of stuns the audience and brings you in musically, even though what you're seeing on screen to begin with is this really mundane image of people on a bus, mm. I think. And, you know, that's mm. quite funny. And so from the very beginning, it int- introduces you into this world as though it's a really performative, surrealist space. But what's really powerful about it is that even though it's so stylized, what's being represented is quite true, that there are, in fact, these witch camps um, I think that Neoni did research in Ghana at a witch camp and so she's mm. depicting this persecution of women in a very real way but just in this um, very interesting stylized manner. And I think that that's so powerful. It's like quite a sad film but you don't really get that until afterwards when it's, when it's completely finished. What I find really interesting, and you mentioned it in your intro, Anders, is the first time we see her is in reaction to that woman carrying the pail of water who falls over. And we see the woman fall over. She's What she's doing at that time is performing traditional female labour in carrying this water. And then we see Shula and she's wearing this grubby top and I think it's intended as kind of a joke and to invite the audience to laugh. Um, but she's wearing a top that says hashtag booty call. Mm. I found yeah. that really, really interesting mm. that it was this odd juxtaposition of like two forms of what's classified as female labour that are viewed with a lot of gendered presumptions, both forms of activity that like imprison women in a certain way and then the film kind of goes ahead and makes Shula into this unwilling um, villain. But in that really interesting way where we first see her is that she's just triggered by this social bind, basically. I mean, both women are. And that, that you kind of see that it's no one's – well, it is someone's fault in the end, I suppose. But, you know, it's not, it's not the fault of these people for doing what they're doing. Yeah. And that yeah, makes it kind of have to have this real-world power, even though it does go on to be a really stylized film. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like that's 
the, the attempts to blame somebody else for your own misfortune or your own lack of options is kind of what gets Shuler into this position in the first place. And it's very interesting to see it both in the, the gendered way, but also the way that the film manages to balance that tone where it's satirical at the same time as being kind of harrowing and sad. But at the same time, it's, it's done in this really, really interesting way, but Shuler suddenly is like at once powerless, but then becomes this object of the justice system. This yeah. economy is built up around her. You know, like you were saying, she's spooking eggs on telly and stuff like that. It's just so strange that it manages to balance all this stuff while being surrealist, while being almost melodramatic with its use of music and some of the shots and the colours at times. And then there's a wonderful inter- encounter with Shula and the wife, Mr. Banders' husband, yeah. wife. Yes. Yep. And yep. seeing that sort of thing where you're like, this is as good as it gets, this is as good as it can possibly get for you. And, yeah, and it, even then. And even then you basically can't leave the house. Because she says, you know, oh, you know, I gained respectability by marriage, so I'm no longer a witch, kind of, is kind of what she's saying. But, yep. you know, that's not the way people view her. I thought that was really interesting, her status as... Like, she's, she she really doesn't have any agency in this film mm. at all. Yeah. And yet, except for these sort of crazy moments where suddenly she has agency over life and death and, you know, she sort of turns into this sort of de facto magistrate <laughs> identifying people who are guilty of robbing, mm. yeah, burglary. It's sort of so absurd. But then sort of through suggestion, it's it sort of gets almost like a kind of horrific. What, you know, what, what her actions lead to what her and, and the actions that she is forced to perform by this local government official mm. um so i found that all all very interesting and i also found the, as i mentioned in my intro the use of sound particularly uh there's sort of these self-conscious moments where the soundtrack is sort of played around with and then there's one key moment where the women give her sort of this funnel um and tell her put it up to your ear and point it in the direction of the school, the nearby school. She she can't go to school. She's a, she's sort of with this community of women. So she listens in the direction of the school, and we hear entirely just in audio what she's missing out on. These people playing, you know, children's games, and it sounds like you know rote learning and that kind of thing. And then it's all interrupted by this honking car and the men arriving to like drag her back from that. So it's always the men who are forcing her into these things. And I just thought that was a really, really interesting a cinematic way of making that point. Mm. In one of many in the film. And also Mulabwa gives a brilliant performance yeah, um, as this as this nine-year-old, I think, Shula. She's just incredible. Like her face is kind of at both like unresponsive but also incredibly rich and detailed in what she can convey. But there's this particular moment where she's on that talk show and um, the government official yeah. says he's kind of really proud of himself for that he thinks he's educating the gov- the people about <laughs> what, who witches are and that they could be anyone. And he says, we think that a witch should be an old stinky woman, but in this case we have a child. And so you kind of see there that obviously he's just a person who's making things up as he goes along. Mm. you know. With, yeah, and he's not very good. <laughs> yeah, and he's not very good at it. Uh, yeah, Probably which is really, really it's really funny that, you know, they think they're imposing and creating this order, but in fact every time anything goes awry, they just grumble and complain in these really silly ways that shows up their disorganisation and lack of control. And that's what they're really interesting as well. You're like, well, this is an accepted um, form of treatment for a lot of women and females in the community that is, is just ingrained and is going to be terrifically difficult to, I guess, overcome. But there's that on when he says that on the TV show, um, and then the interviewer says, "You're claiming she's a witch, but what if she's just a child?" 
like this a really good comment empathetic there was a tear coming from her eye from Shula's yeah, eye at that time yeah. and I was like this is the only time pretty much that you actually see her respond in a way that means she doesn't want to be there um, because she does kind of I mean she, she runs away obviously at the beginning um, but is then brought back but otherwise she just kind of goes along with it I guess because she just understands that she's imprisoned not only in this witch camp but like in society in yeah. general. We should also mention that she's told that she will turn into a goat if she mm. tries to escape or cuts yeah, her ribbon. Yeah, she's sort of given the option isn't she? <laughs> do you choose to be a goat or do you choose to be a witch? Yeah, and then um, later she yeah. says she wishes to be a goat because at least it could move freely if yes. it was a goat. Yeah. But I find it really interesting. Like she never – this film is called I Am Not a Witch, but she never says that. She never has agency to be able to actually comment on this. And I find that really interesting because it's setting it up as though this is going to be her story about how she's not a witch. But that's something that she's never allowed to say and that double – um, meaning is really, really powerful, you know, and in more ways Yeah, in this film. In a lot of the c- cases, she's always just react- responding to adults. And that seems to be a lot of what a lot of child acting is. We've seen, I don't know, I, I'm at least thinking there's a whole bunch of recent cu- child acting that I think is incredible. And a lot, of, and there, are, there are moments in this film that aren't just her responding to adults. There are, like, of course, she's, she's shut down on what she can do and her options are very, very limited. But, the, yeah, there's moments like that tear and this sort of stuff where I'm just like, God, this is really fantastic performance. I'm really looking forward to both what she does and Yoni does like further down the track because I think there's so much talent happening here. Mm, absolutely. Uh, also, but also yeah, one other thing is that the storyline itself, I'm, so I, I know very little about this world, so I wasn't really sure if there were some like absurd jumps in logic or if we were seeing a very compressed time frame that this might all be possible mm. but it wouldn't happen quite so fast or... Because you know, it's almost like you know watching a film from another country, and you're not sure if somebody's a great actor or not because you're looking at the subtitles, or if you know. So there was a bit of like it's just a kind of a bunch of vignettes. Yeah, 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 but yeah, kind of, yeah. But there also is a kind of cultural gap and a failing on my part to not know more about this world to be able to better appreciate what might be happening, or to point out that maybe it's not, it's not as great as it seems to us because we don't know that much about the world. Mm, I read that Ghana, um, the government in Ghana, has announced an initiative to close witch camps and to try and educate the population that witches do not exist. Wow. And I, I mean, that can't be in response to this movie or at least it's not something that I know of, but that's pretty amazing, mm. you know. So this is something that's so ingrained, as we said, and communicated in this film in popular understanding that yeah. hopefully is going to be try and be removed from... Acceptance. Yeah, because anyway. it is fascinating. I mean, it, it reminded me a bit of the way the conspiracy theories are often taken up by people who, in an effort to explain and find order into something that they can't quite understand because there's so much ambiguity and unpredictability about, about life. Mm. And to see that sort of thinking put here on this kind of industrial scale where, you know, this there's stuff that the people are never going to understand or be able to change or the, there's a lack of edu- general lack of education. So mm. this is sort of empowered to this ridiculous degree where you can make these insane decisions on somebody else's life. Yeah. I read a really interesting review written by Alexandra Hellenicolis. She wrote for the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. Um, and she said that it was quite powerful that this film has come out in 2017, in the same year that The Handmaid's Tale, my God, Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale has been adapted for television. And so not only the TV show, but the, the book also has been rediscovered. Um, and reread by a new generation and hopefully, you know, just by a whole lot of people across the board. Um, but that this film, uh, I'm Not a Witch, in a similar way to The Hammer's Tale, interrogates women's and specifically like a girl's experiences of abuse 
um, exploitation and oppression and like also just exclusion from the realm of being a thinking, feeling being that these stories are being given you life now and that's really incredible. Yeah, and I think in both cases all the things that happen in these fictional stories actually happen in real life. Mm. Like I think I remember Mark Radwood saying that about The Handmaid's Tale that none of this is made up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is kind of terrifying and, it's, and it seems the same as I'm Not a Witch. Mm. Yeah. I just want to quickly... Uh, uh, reinforce the striking visuals of well in all sorts of moments, but um, the fact that these women wear these ribbon, these ginormous ribbons that are attached to their mm. backs, and they're sort of explained as a mechanism for preventing them from flying away. But what happens is that the men sort of keep them on this this big orange truck, and basically they just pull on them whenever they need the women, and they sort of drag this, you know. Um, this scene where Shula is sort of just literally dragged across the ground by her ribbon. All of that stuff was really interesting, I thought, the ribbon stuff. It was sort of yeah. like a very interesting visual metaphor for their control. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For an aged care facility, which is essentially what it's kind of using. <laughs> kind of in a weird Yeah, because what else yeah. is women going to do? Well, at one point he says, I think it's Banda, says... Um, now you're, you know, he gives them new ribbons or something and he says, now you're free to go kilometres and kilometres. <laughs> mm. As though he's giving them a ge- this really generous gift that he's framing his actions as those of a saviour. And I thought that's a perfect analogy for, you know, politicians who take away basic rights or basic provisions that were provided through structures in the community and then, like, suggest that offering any little sliver of these same services back is like a gift or, you know, that they are performing a service. And that that's kind of really incredible as well as a comment in the film for people who are disenfranchised. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, and also a comment on capitalism itself. Mm. You know, we still just want a nicer cage. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, there's so much going on in this. It was film. more than I thought. Now that yeah. I listen to you guys talk yeah, about it, yeah, great discussion. Yeah, it's so, work, everybody. But it's like, I mean, and also just the music. I mean, you mentioned the sound design, yeah, Anders, but the music yeah. is incredible. It opens with Vivaldi, and it goes through a few of his four seasons movements, and then ends with a like 10 year old pop song which is quite (laughs) funny but also just like (laughs) devastating um but the way that it's used is really really interesting music in the in the like space of the film yeah um how much the budget went on that anyway yeah Yeah. but yeah what is she gonna do next i feel like she could do anything it's so unpredictable such an unusual film yeah i really really want to see what she does next um anyway i'm not a witch is screening at acme from april 19th to may 7th out through Madman Entertainment. And I guess with any luck, it might have a season extended. Yeah, go and see it and then tell us what you think. Yeah. Please do. Thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 46 of Cultural Capital. Why not get an extra thanks from us by throwing some stars our way on iTunes? That would be great. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Laurie Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. And we think you're great. Thank you.